Let's start by looking at Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. And from this verse, we learn that we all are vulnerable to temptation. The text in its context is talking about the Christian who is the spiritual one here reaching out, trying to help someone who has gone astray or who has sinned. And he said, brethren, if anyone is overtaken in a trespass, ye who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, looking to thyself, lest thou also be tempted. I want us to look at that phrase, lest thou also be tempted. From that I learned that we must recognize that I face temptation too. As I try to help someone over here in their problem, I need to recognize and approach with an attitude that says, you know what, I face temptation too. Furthermore, I learned from that text that I need to understand that I may be tempted in the future in ways that I cannot even imagine now. I may be dealing with someone who has stolen something and I wouldn't even think of stealing, not at the moment, but I need to recognize I might in the future be tempted to do the very thing I'm condemning in him. And I need to recognize that. I may be tempted in the future in ways that I cannot even imagine at the present. And it's possible, I learned from this text, that I could commit the same sin that I'm rebuking in him. The very same thing that I have no toleration for, I could be guilty of the very same thing. I could be tempted to commit the same sin. So what that suggests is that we have a battle with temptation. And let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and in verse 13. It suggests there is a battle here with temptation. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. All right, here's what I learned from that text. I learned that we all deal with temptation. If you're living and breathing and over the age of accountability, you are dealing with temptation. You deal with it. I deal with it. We all deal with it. This text also tells me that every temptation is bearable. In other words, I can make it through that. I can overcome that, which suggests there is a battle somehow with temptation. This text says also there is a way to escape. That I might not escape temptation. In other words, it overcomes me. And I'm overtaken in a fault, as we saw in Galatians 6. But there is a way to escape, and that also suggests there is a battle. Three weeks ago, we talked about the Christian's battle with anger. Two weeks ago, we talked about the Christian's battle with his tongue. Last week, we talked about the Christian's battle with worry. Let's talk this morning about <clears throat> the Christian's battle with temptation. We all battle with temptation. <clears throat> so what is this battle with temptation? Four things we want to consider. Here's the first. Let's talk about the nature of temptation. What is temptation? How does it work? How does it come? How do I recognize it? What is the nature of temptation? Let's start with this. Let's consider the word that is translated temptation. We just saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, there is no temptation taken. What is that? What are you talking about? And then the verse, and we noted in Galatians 6 and in verse 1, lest you also be tempted. What's that? What is this temptation? What's that all about? And if this were a Bible class and I said, what is the temptation? 
One may suggest one thing and somebody else may suggest something else. And you say, those are contradictory or those are not the same thing. And you may be right. They're not exactly the same thing. But both may be temptations. Let's see how that works. This word translated temptation, Strong says, it means a putting to proof by experiment of good or experience of evil. Notice this word solicitation. We all recognize that. So that's not a hard thing to comprehend. But the word literally means a putting to proof, but it can involve a solicitation, a discipline or provocation by implication, adversity. All right, before we get any further, I've already learning that temptation can involve a solicitation to do something wrong. A temptation can involve adversity, which is a proof or that is a test. So I'm already seeing two different concepts. So let's go a little bit further. M.R. Vincent says in his word studies, it's a mistake to define the word only as solicitation to evil. That's the point I want us to see. It means trial of any kind without reference to its moral quality. So what Vincent and Strong both are doing is taking the word and backing away. And let's look at the concept. What is temptation? Temptation is a test or a trial. It may involve a solicitation, but it may involve some other form of a trial. Let's go further. A.T. Robertson says the word here translated temptation means originally a trial or a test as in James 1 and in verse 2. We're coming to that here in just a second. So what I'm learning is it involves at least two concepts. So let's talk about those two concepts. There are two ways this word temptation is used. So let's go to James chapter 1 and in verse 2. Stay in that context once you get there because we're going to look at another verse. <clears throat> James chapter 1 and in verse 2, James says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. You may have a translation that uses the word temptation. The word translated trials is the same word translated temptation in these other verses that we just noticed. And so it means temptation or it means a trial. But here in this context, it's talking about a testing or a trying or a proving. He's talking about persecution in this context in verses 1 and 2. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, various adversities. Not necessarily, at verse 1, a solicitation to sin, but it's a trial you're going through. All right, let's drop down a little bit. Let's drop down 10 verses later and look at verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. This in this context, as we're going to see at verse 13, 14, and 15, has to do with an enticement to sin. So in this context, he used the same word, though it may not be rendered the same in the context, the word trials and temptation is the same word. And it's used in two different ways. So if we face persecution, or it may be error that has been taught, that is, it is a, a trial of my faith. Am I going to yield and, and buy into this era? Or am I going to stand for the truth? Or it might be some tragedy that befalls me that makes me want to just throw up my hands and quit. That becomes a test or a trial. So what we have is a test or a trial of our faith. But James also talks about an allurement or an enticement. Something I may see. I may see money and be tempted to steal. I may see a picture and I'm tempted to lust. I may be tempted to do various things because of what I see or might be enticed. That also, this enticement or solicitation to sin 
is a temptation. Both of those are temptations as per the context of James chapter 1. I just want you to see there are two different ways in which that term is used. But I want us to now go further and talk about how temptation is not sin within itself. Because someone is tempted, and maybe even repeatedly tempted, that doesn't constitute sin unless they yield. Jesus himself was tempted. <clears throat> in Matthew chapter 4, I'm not going to pay attention to that passage at this juncture, just a passing reference, we're coming back to it later. But on three occasions in Matthew chapter 4, Satan tempted Jesus, you remember. Took him into the mountain or into the wilderness to tempt him, the text says. <clears throat> Let's go to Hebrews chapter 2. <clears throat> in Hebrews chapter 2, Jesus is the perfect high priest because, the text says, he himself suffered being tempted. All I want you to see is, Jesus himself was tempted. Drop over to chapters, chapter 4, and in verse 15, <clears throat> the text says, We have a high priest, do not have a high priest, who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but in all points was tempted like as we, yet without sin. Here's what I learned from that. Jesus was tempted, he didn't yield, he didn't sin, so temptation and sin are not the same thing. James chapter 1, in that context where we just noticed a moment ago, when lust hath conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin when it is finished, it brings forth death. Here's what I learned from that. Only when I become, when it becomes sin, only when I yield to that temptation does it become sin. But let's go even further. I want us to talk about the avenues or the allurement comes in three avenues. We're trying to describe what temptation is, what temptation involves. So let's open our Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. And let's look at verses 15 to 17, a familiar text. And talk about the three avenues of temptation found in our text. Here's what I'm seeing in 1 John chapter 2 beginning at verse 15. 1 John chapter 2 beginning at verse 15 John writes, saying, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, number one, the lust of the eyes, number two, and the pride of life are not of the Father, but of the world. Now let's take each of those and see what's involved in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. These are the allurement through three different avenues. First of all, there's the lust of the flesh. With each of these, we're going to notice, at least in passing, examples of where one was tempted in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And they're the same people. For example, Eve, this involves indulging in fleshly pleasures. Eve was tempted in that fashion. So was Jesus tempted in that fashion. So turn over to Genesis chapter 3. You might even put a marker there for, we're going back to this again in a few moments. But in Genesis chapter 3, the text says, in verse 6, I want you to notice all three of these are mentioned in verse 6. Verse 4 implies the same thing. Uh, that the serpent said, you will not surely die. But now in verse 6, the woman saw the tree was good for food. And pleasant to the eyes and desirable to make one wise. So when Satan came to tempt Eve, he made it so that it was desirable for food. Notice again, verse 6, she saw the tree was good for food. In other words, she was tempted because this was indulging in fleshly, uh, fleshly pleasures. 
Go to Matthew chapter 4 and in verse 3. When Jesus was tempted on those three occasions in Matthew chapter 4, all three avenues were used. Look at Matthew chapter 4 and in verse 3. On this occasion, when Jesus was tempted, the first temptation, as it is listed in Matthew, they're not in the same order in other accounts, but in Matthew's account, when the tempter said, if you're the son of God, command these stones to be made bread. That was a temptation from the avenue of the lust of the flesh. Now what's involved in the lust of the flesh? Adam Clark says it's the sensual impure desires which seek their gratification in women, strong drink, delicious viands and the like. Furthermore, Matthew Henry says that what's involved here, the flesh here, he says, being distinguished from the eyes and the life, imports the body. The lust of the flesh is subjectively the humor and appetite of indulging fleshly pleasures and objectively all those things that excite and inflame the pleasures of the flesh, the lust is usually called luxury. That's the lust of the flesh. Jesus was tempted in that fashion and so was Eve tempted in that fashion. The second avenue is the lust of the eyes, that which is pleasing to the eyes. Go back to Genesis chapter uh, 3 and in verse 6. Not only did Eve see that it was good for food, but it was pleasant for the eyes. So she was tempted in that second avenue as well. So was Jesus. Notice at verse 9 now. At verse 9, this was the third temptation as recorded in Matthew. That Satan took him to the high mountain and showed him the kingdoms of the world and said, All these things I will give you if you'll fall down and worship me. And so he was appealing to the lust of the eye, that which is pleasing to the eye in order that it might see. Adam Clark, continuing his comment, says that this is the inordinate desire of finery of everything. That is gaudy dress, splendid houses, superb furniture, expensive uh, equipage, trappings and decorations of all sorts. Notice that what Matthew Henry, I mean Adam Clark is focusing on is that the lust of the, <clears throat> lust of the eye is not just looking to lust, as in Matthew chapter 5, or looking to lust in the sense that I'm going to seize and have that money, but it may have to do with this idea of wanting bigger and greater and more things. That's how he uses the term, at least that's how he comments upon it. Matthew Henry says, the eyes are delighted with the treasures and riches and rich possessions are craved by the extravagant eye, the lust of covetousness, that this would involve covetousness as well as looking and lusting as per Matthew chapter 5. M.R. Vincent said, The desires of the eye do not involve appropriation, but the satisfied with contemplating. Notice that distinction. Now, Vincent's not a commentator. These others were commentators. He's a lexicographer. What Vincent is saying is that, that the lust of the eye is, doesn't necessarily involve seizing and getting, but it often is satisfied with just contemplating. That is, it represents the higher type of desire than the desire of the flesh. It seeks a mental pleasure where the other seeks physical gratification. So he said, I didn't seek the, mental, uh, the physical gratification, but I'm just enjoying looking. That's the lust of the eye. Again, Matthew chapter 5 would fit. Let me give you some examples of that. David did that. Let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 11. Do you remember David in 2 Samuel when um, he saw Bathsheba, 2 Samuel 11, and notice it, verse 2. 
Verse 2 said, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was beautiful to behold. That is to continue to look and to, to gaze. David was tempted through the lust of the eye. Did he go to the full-fledged sin? Absolutely. But he was tempted through that avenue. Let's notice another example in the book of Joshua. Go to Joshua 7. You remember Achan when he took of the accursed thing, when finally he was found out. Notice at verse 21, he said, I saw among the spoils. Beautiful Babylonian garment and two shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels. And I coveted. What's he saying? I was tempted through the lust of the eye. I saw it and I wanted it. He was tempted through the lust of the eye. But here's the third avenue. And that is the pride of life. Seeking honor for self. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 3. And notice again in Genesis 3 and in verse 6. Eve was tempted in all three avenues. She saw that it was good for food, the first. That it was pleasant for the eyes, the second. And now here's the third. And it was desirable to make one wise. So she was tempted in all three avenues. So was Jesus. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 4. And this time we're looking at the second of the three as listed by Matthew. Matthew chapter 4 and look at verse 6. That this time when Satan tempted Jesus, he said, If you're the son of God, throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple. He was tempting him through the lust of the, or the pride of life. So all three avenues were used. Now let's see a couple of comments. Adam Clark says, this is hunting for honors and titles and pedigrees, boasting of ancestry, family connections, great offices, honorable acquaintance and the like. Matthew Henry says, it's a vain mind, craves all the grandeur and equipage and the pomp of vainglorious life. This is ambition and thirst after honor and applause. This is in part the disease of the ear. It's most flattered, or it must be flattered with admiration and praise. And so it doesn't always mean that someone is saying great things about themselves, but it might involve listening to things and desiring for someone to say great things about them. Here's M.R. Vincent, the lexicographer, says, It means originally empty braggart talk or display, swagger, and hence an insolent and vain assurance in one's own resources or in stability of earthly things, which issues in contempt of divine laws. The vainglory of life and the vainglory which belongs to the present life. And here's what we've just seen. We've been trying to describe the nature of temptation. We know what the word means. It's used in two different ways. That's not sin within itself. And we can be allured in three different avenues or three different ways. Here's the second thing we want to know about temptation. And that's the cause of temptation. You say, I'm tempted, but what causes that? What brings that on? What's the cause of temptation? Well, let's start with this. Let's turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and in verse 5. Satan is the tempter. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and in verse 5. You remember repeatedly we've made the point in our studies in 1 Thessalonians that Paul was concerned about the church at Thessalonica. He left them in a cloud of persecution, and now he's, he's concerned how did things fare. And what he was concerned about is the tempter may have got to them. So he says this, 1 Thessalonians 3 and in verse 5, For this reason, when I can no longer endure, I sent to know of your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor be in vain. There's someone who is a tempter. Well, that was Satan. I know that because it was Satan that tempted Eve. It was Satan that tempted Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. 
So that was the source of that. Now here's what he wants to do. Let's go to 1 Peter 5 and in verse 8. 1 Peter 5 and verse 8, Peter warns that the devil is as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. He's seeking to devour, to destroy you. So you say, where, where does temptation come from? What's this all about? It's coming from Satan, and what he's seeking to do is to devour you and to destroy you. Just like a lion is seeking to destroy you. Look at Luke chapter 22 and 31. Jesus told Peter, I have prayed for you, he said. But he said, Satan has desired you that he may sift you as wheat. That's interesting. He said, Satan is after you, Peter. And what he's wanting with you, he wants to sift you as wheat. What does that allude to? What does it mean to sift? We don't use that term a great deal. There says it means to sift or to shake in a sieve as you would wheat. Barnes says grain was agitated or shaken in a kind of fan or sieve as we have pictured here. The grain remained in the fan and the chaff and the dust were thrown off or blown away. So Christ says that Satan desired to try Peter and to place trials and temptations before him to agitate him to see whether anything of faith would remain in the sieve or whether it all be found to be chaff and, and false profession and just blown away. Now that's interesting. He said Satan has desired you that he may sift you. He wants to shake you and agitate you and see if anything of faith remains, if there's anything there. That's what he did with Job. Now that concept of sifting, Matthew Henry says, he has challenged you. This is as if, this is what Jesus is saying to, to Peter, that he has challenged you, Satan has challenged you, has undertaken to prove you a company of hypocrites. What Satan thinks he can do for you, Peter, is to prove there's nothing to your faith. You're just a hypocrite in his mind. So Peter, especially the forwardest of you, some suggest that Satan demanded leave to sift them as their punishment for striving to be the greatest, in which contest Peter perhaps was very warm. Leave them to me and to sift them uh, for it. And perhaps Henry is right about that. That Satan is saying, I'll sift them and I'll show you that Peter doesn't amount to anything. There's no faith left when I get through with him. And so where does the temptation come from? It's coming from Satan. He's wanting to devour and destroy you, and he's wanting to shake and agitate you to see if there's any faith left in you or not. Now let's consider the fact that he has many tools. 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 11, Paul said, we're not ignorant of his devices. He has many devices. In other words, he just doesn't have one tool, and if that doesn't work, he doesn't use any other tools. If this tool doesn't work, he has another tool. And if that tool doesn't work, he has another tool in his toolbox. He has many devices. In Ephesians 6, you put on the whole armor of God to stand against the wiles. Look at your footnote. The scheming. He's scheming. He has wiles. He has many tools. Paul told the Thessalonians, or told Timothy, he sets snares. He sets traps. He's after you to destroy you. When we yield, we're giving place. Opportunity, your footnote will say, to the devil. Are you giving opportunity and place to him? You're giving him an open door? 
See, that's what we're doing. When I yield to the temptation, I'm opening the door to Satan to let him in. He's trying to sift us. So what's the cause? It comes from Satan. But here's something else. It comes from our own desire and our own self. Let's go back to James 1 and verse 14. Back in James, James talking about this temptation. Remember, he talked about two kinds of temptations in the same chapter. But verse 14, he said, but each one is tempted when he's drawn away of his own desires and enticed. You say, I don't understand why I'm tempted to do this particular sin. Well, Satan's trying to get you to do that. That's one thing. He's real and he's alive. But I'll tell you another thing. You're drawn away by your own lust and your own, in, your own desires. In Ephesians chapter 2, this is talking about the people who were not children of God before they became children of God. But here's what I want you to notice. When we sin, what we're doing, Ephesians 2 says, is fulfilling the desires of the flesh. In other words, I'm doing whatever is appealing to the flesh. I'm doing whatever appeals to my eyes. I'm doing whatever appeals to my pride of life. Notice at verse 3, among whom you also once conducted yourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh. Now take note of this. Every temptation, every temptation involves both of those. You say, I'm tempted to steal. Why is that? Because Satan is wanting you to steal and because you have your own desire to do that very thing. You say, well, I'm not tempted to do that. I'm tempted to lie. You're tempted to lie because Satan's wanting you to lie and because you have a desire to do that. Somebody said, oh, I'm not. I'm, I'm tempted to commit the sin of fornication. That's because Satan wants you to do that and you have the desire to do that. Every temptation involves both of those. But let's go further. We're trying to talk about the cause. I want to see that it's not from God, though he allows that. Go back to James chapter 1. We've been there several times. James chapter 1 tells us, beginning at verse 13, that let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God, because God can tempt, cannot be tempted with evil, nor, can he, uh, nor does he tempt anyone. And he goes on to tell us more about that. We'll come back to later on through verse 18. So we cannot be tempted by God. God doesn't cause temptation. You say, why am I tempted? Did God cause this to happen to me? No, he didn't cause that. God can't tempt anyone. But there is a sense in which he leads us to temptation. You say, how? Let's go to Matthew chapter 6. In that model prayer, we're to pray to God saying, lead us not into temptation. Now, is that saying, God, don't, don't put temptation in front of me if I'm praying something that he can't even do in the first place? That doesn't seem to make sense to me that I'm, don't, don't do what I know is impossible for you to do. Please don't tempt me, but I know you, it's impossible for you to tempt me. How, in what sense does he lead us into temptation? He only leads us in the sense he allows it. He doesn't cause it, but he allows it. For example, the case of Job. Do you remember what God said concerning Job? I'm paraphrasing, of course. But when, Job asked, when, when, when Satan asked about Job, Basically, God said, well, have at him. Have at him. There he is. Do what you want to with him. See what, what happens. He did the same thing with Peter. Satan has desired you that he may sift you. Did he allow it? Yeah. Satan did sift him. And shook him and agitated him. To see if there's anything he had within him that was of true faith. He allows some things, even temptation he allows. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and in verse 13. No temptation has taken you, but such as is common, bearable to man. In other words, he allows that. 
How do I know he allows it? Because he says we face it. So God doesn't cause it, but God does allow it. So what have we seen in this? What, what's the cause of temptation? It comes from Satan, my own desires, but it doesn't come from God. That's what I want us to see. Here's the third thing. Let's talk about the battle with temptation. What I mean by that, we'll talk in a moment about how to endure that, but why is temptation such a battle? Why is it such a battle for every one of us? Why is that? Well, here's the first. It's a, it's a battle because it appeals to what we want. You see, it wouldn't be really a temptation if the appeal was for something that I didn't even like. I don't want. Now, this is not on a sinful nature, but it illustrates the point. If you, ha if you hate and despise chocolate cake, and someone sets a chocolate cake in front of you, that's not a temptation for you to eat it because you despise it. You said, I, couldn't, I can't stand it. But if it's, the doctor says you can't have it because it's going to create problems for you, and someone sets it in front of you and you just love chocolate cake, now it's a temptation. Why? Because it's what you want. Same thing is true with all these sins. Now, let's consider this. The lust of the flesh is what I want to do. Or it wouldn't be the lust of the flesh for me. The lust of the eyes is what I want to see, and the pride of life is what I think about myself. It appeals to me and what I want. Jesus said the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. What does that mean? There's something I like and something I want. Furthermore, in Romans chapter 7, I understand. Let me footnote to say that I understand. This is not talking about the child of God. I got that. Romans 7 is talking about the alien sinner, but it illustrates the conflict. That Romans 7 says, here's what I know to be right, but here's what I want to do. And I don't always do what I know to be right. What I'm trying to illustrate from Romans 7 and Matthew chapter 26 and any other text is that the battle with temptation is it appeals to what I want to do. It appeals to my wants and my desires. Here's another reason it's a battle. Because it targets our weak points. It targets our weak points. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Let me set the context because this will help us to understand the point being made. Paul is saying in the context, it's better not to marry. And you say, well, wait a minute, what, what, what does that mean? In the context of the present distress, it's better not to get married. But he says it's better to marry than to, to burn with desire, verse 9. It's better under some circumstances to go ahead and marry. Even in the present distress, it's better to marry. His point in this context is if you do marry, remember there's some obligations. For example, let the husband render to the wife affection due, and likewise also the wife to her husband. And the wife does not have authority over her own body, uh, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife. And do not deprive one another. I'm talking about the intimate sexual relationship. If you get married, there's that obligation. Don't withhold that from your mate. Now, in that context, in that context, notice what he said at verse 5. <clears throat> do not deprive one another, except it be with consent for a time. That you give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that, are you reading with me? Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Here's the point I want you to see. One can be tempted in an area of lack of self-control. So Satan is targeting this person right at their weakest point. He may not tempt that person with stealing right now because that's not on their mind. Not under this circumstance. But he's tempting his weakest area. He's going to hit your weakest area too. Let's look at 1 Timothy 6 and in verse 
verse 9. Those that desire to be rich. Not everybody desires to be rich. Not everybody's greedy. Not everybody wants more and more and more. But there's some who do. And those who do, those who desire to be rich, fall into temptation and a snare. And that might be why stealing is appealing to them. That's why maybe doing something that is contrary to their faith is appealing to them if it gains them more money. That's what I want you to see. Those that desire to be rich are tempted with reference to those things. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 6. 1 Peter chapter 1 and in verse 6. This is talking about a trial we face. But notice the wording. It's quite unique to me. Uh, interesting. It doesn't just mention the fact that we face a trial, but verse 6 says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you're grieved by various trials. One translation says manifold temptations, many faceted, manifold, meaning many. It goes in many directions. Here's what that means in practical terms. Satan is going to attack you from every angle. He's going to attack your weak point. If your weak point over here is sensuality, he's going to hit that weak area. But when you strengthen that up, maybe it's the pride of life. And he's going to come from the other angle. And he's going to hit from that angle. And he's going to hit you from something else. And you beef that up and you say, well, I think I've got it there. He's going to come and hit you from another angle. He's hitting you from every side. He's hitting me from every side. Hitting us all from every side. And our temptations may be different. You may be struggling with this temptation, and that doesn't bother me at all. And I may be struggling with something that you don't even think about ever. Everybody's temptation may be different. Why is it such a battle? Because it's deceptive. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 3. That's the nature of temptation. Temptation doesn't... Uh, temptation doesn't present itself in its reality... And says, here's what I am. Here's what I'm going to do to you. You will be devoured spiritually. Here's the word I want you to see in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 3, rather, and in verse 12, um, verse 13. But exhort one another daily while it's called a day, lest any of you be hardened through, here's our word, the deceitfulness of sin. It's so deceitful, it's so deceiving. That makes it a battle. Here's something else that makes it a battle. It tries to break down our resistance and so we as the people of God are trying to build a wall of resistance. And what Satan tries to do with temptation is to road that wall and break it down. It doesn't just suddenly fall. It gets thinner and it gets thinner and thinner and thinner. Let me give you an example of that in Proverbs 6 and also Proverbs 7. This is the harlot breaking down the wall of resistance with the young man whom she is trying to, to get to. Look, notice in Proverbs 6 and in verse 26. That by means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread. You, put, you, take, you take bread and then it just finally just crumbles till it just falls and it's gone. She takes him in his resistance and she tries to begin to break down until she's just crumbled him. She broke down the wall of resistance. Look at chapter 7 and in verse 21. With her enticing words, she causes him to yield. And with her flattering lips, she seduced him. So with her seduction, with the looking of her eyes, with the words of flatter, she begins to break down that wall of resistance. That's what temptation does. That's why it's such a battle. Here's something else. It makes us think we're doing the right thing and think we're stronger than others at times. I'll give you an example of that. 
Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11. Let's set the context and then you'll understand what the point is. In 1 Corinthians 5, there was a fornicator in the church that had not been dealt with. And so Paul writes to them in 1 Corinthians saying, deal with him, withdraw from him, and they did. In fact, now they went to the other side of the spectrum and were piling on the condemnation even after he repented. Reminding him of what a sinner he was even though he's repented. And Paul now is writing to them, let up on him and forgive him and embrace him. And then he says in that context, for we are not ignorant of his devices. What does that that mean? Apparently there was some at Corinth thinking, I'll tell you what, we're stronger than the rest of you. Y'all have forgiven this man of his adultery, but I'm going to tell you, I'm still reminding him he's a sinner. And I'm standing for the truth. And I'm standing against sin. You maybe want to be soft on sin, but I'm standing strong and I'm still reminding him of his sin. Say, I'm stronger than you. And Satan, it gets us from that angle of making us think we're stronger and that we're more faithful and we're more diligent when maybe he's led us to do the wrong thing. Therefore, there is a battle. And when we yield, here's what makes it a battle. When we finally cave in, we've committed sin. James chapter 1. What makes it such a battle? Because it appeals to what I want. It appeals to my weak point. It's so deceptive. It breaks down our resistance. Makes us think we're doing the right thing. Finally, Let's talk about escaping from temptation. We all face it. And unless we're giving in constantly to sin, we're learning somewhere to put some resistance up and to escape the temptation. So let's see what does the text say. First of all, how how do I deal with temptation? I begin by realizing that temptation is a testing, whatever form it comes in. It's not merely an enticement to sin. But this temptation is an occasion to put me to the test. It is a test. In fact, every temptation is a test of one's faith and one's strength. If I constantly give in to temptation, that's testimony to the fact I'm weak. If I constantly resist time and again and again and again, that is testimony to the strength to, to, to my strength spiritually. And so look at that in your own life. You say, well, here's a temptation. I seem to give into that, and I give into it again, and I give into it again, and I give into it again. There's a weakness. But here's something you've been tempted, and you're still tempted, but you keep resisting and resisting and resisting and resisting. That's testimony to your strength. See, within each resistance, we get stronger and we get stronger. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus was tempted. Do you remember that? Listen to these words from A.T. Robertson. He said the word tempt. Here in Matthew chapter 4, 3, that's where Jesus was tempted. Means originally to test. We saw that earlier in our study. To try, and that's the usually meaning of that. That's all I wanted to see from A.T. Robertson. He's a lexicographer. That the word basically means to test or to try. Now, Barclay, who's a commentator, but he also is a uh, lexicographer as well. He does a lot of uh, word studies. He said, now here is the great uplifting truth. What's, what's this great uplifting truth that he's learning about the temptation of Jesus? What we call temptation is not meant to make us sin. It is meant to enable us to conquer sin. 
It is not meant to make us bad. It's meant to make us good. It is not meant to weaken us. It's meant to make us emerge stronger and finer and purer from the ordeal. Temptation is not a penalty of being a man. Temptation is the glory of being a man. It is the test which comes to a man whom God wishes to use. So then, we must think of this whole incident and experience not so much as the tempting as the testing of Jesus. Well, I might have reworded that a little different than Barclay did, but I get the point he's making. That when Jesus went through these trials, it was a testing of him, not just an enticement to get him to sin. Satan was after that, certainly. But it was a testing of him. And every temptation you face is a testing of you. And so we begin with the idea, I realize that this temptation is a test. I'm being sifted. Is any faith going to land in the sea? Secondly, I need to realize you don't have to yield. Start with the realization, this is a test. And secondly, I don't have to yield. Joseph didn't yield, did he? I want to tell you, he faced a strong temptation. Here's a man of 17, 18 years of age. Being called upon by Potiphar's wife and she's begging and pleading, come live with me. Few young men in Egypt could have resisted that kind of temptation, and yet he did. He said, no, I'm not going to do that. Jesus did not yield. There is a way to escape. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 a little closer. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is, and here's the phrase I want you to focus on, common to man. What does that mean, common to man? We'll come back to that. But God is faithful and now you'll be tempted above that which you're able. And with the temptation will make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Now notice the latter phrase. There is a way to escape and you can bear it. But this temptation is common to man. What does that mean? Vincent, word study. What does he say? Common to man, the word means what belongs to men or human. It occurs mostly in this epistle, once in Romans 6, meaning after the manner of men, popularity, popularly. It may, here, uh, may mean here a temptation which is human or an incident common to man. In other words, it may mean, as some suggest, it's something every one of us face. It's common in that sense. As the King James Version. But he said the words added, such as man can bear, in the English Revised Version 1885 and later 1901, the words are added here as an encouragement to offset the warning. Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. There is a danger. Uh, they, uh, they are in danger and must watch, but the temptation will not be beyond their strength. What's he saying? What he's saying is what we find in the American Standard Version. I'll come back and read um, more of, of that in a moment. But there is no temptation taking you, but such as man can bear. That's the idea of it being common to man. It's human. It's, it's bearable. In other words, I don't have to yield. It's not just that it's common. I'm facing something every man faces, but I'm facing something that I can deal with. It's bearable. Again, the American standard, a little more wooden and literal. There is no temptation taking you, but such as man can bear, he says. Here's the third thing I can do. I can pray. I can pray before I'm tempted. In other words, I don't wait to the moment I'm in the middle of temptation. I may not be in a mood or thinking about praying because the temptation may be coming so strong, but I can pray before I ever face that temptation. Like Matthew 6, 13, 
Lead us not into temptation. If I think I may be in a circumstance where I'll be tempted, I need to pray about that before I reach that temptation. And isn't that what Jesus was talking about? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He told him to pray in that context. So I might pray before I face temptation, but I might pray in the midst of temptation. You say, what does Ephesians 6 have to do with that? Well, let's see. This is in the context. Context has everything to do with every passage. But Ephesians 6 is putting on the whole armor of God. That me may be able to stand against the wiles, the schemes of the devil. And so what do you put on? Well, he talks about putting on the helmet and putting on the breastplate, etc. And one of the things we leave out in the list is part of that armor. But there's no parallel in the armor. In other words, where the word of God is the sword. Here is prayer that's mentioned, but it's not mentioned as being parallel to something else. But notice verse 18, right in that context, praying always with all prayer and supplication, being watchful to this end with the perseverance and supplication for all the saints. If that is not part of the whole armor of God, I'm not sure how anything is part of the armor of God. The point is, you pray when you're tempted. That's part of the tools you use. What else can I do to escape temptation? Remember what the word said. Joseph remembered the word. Remember what he said? How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? That was in the middle of the temptation. When it was strong, he said, I remember, and I'm paraphrasing, that that is wickedness and that's sin, and I can't do that. Jesus recalled what is written. That's how he resisted all three of the temptations. He responded by quoting an Old Testament scripture from the book of Deuteronomy. It is written, and he recalled that. That'll help us in the midst of temptation. Most sins are a perversion of a lawful desire. Which means if I go back to the word and remember, there is a way to fulfill that desire. But in a lawful manner, that might help me with the temptation. For example, fornication is a perversion of marriage. And Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 7 is, it's better to marry than to burn with desire. Rather than commit fornication, get married and take care of that desire. Here's another uh, sin. Idolatry is a perversion of true worship. Someone has a a desire to to give homage. There's a Bible way of doing that. Or stealing is a perversion of working in order that we might have. There's a Bible principle involved being violated in every sin. And then fifth, flee, run from the temptation. Let's go to Genesis chapter 39. I want you to notice two things that Joseph did. Genesis 39, when he was tempted by Potiphar's wife, the text says he ran literally. He fled and ran outside, the text says. Verse 12. Left his garment in her hand. But there's another thing I want you to notice. At verse 10, he sought to avoid the tempting circumstance. Verse 10. That so it was that as she spoke to Joseph day by day that he did not heed her. In other words, he said no to her. To lie with her, here's the next phrase, or to be with her. He sought to avoid the tempting circumstance. He didn't just get with her and say, I'm not going to commit the sin. He sought to not even be around her. He sought to avoid the circumstance. That's part of fleeing. We are told to flee fornication. We're told to flee youthful lust. Run from the temptation. Don't get as close as you can. And let's see if I can get close without committing Let's go as far as we can from that. So what have we seen in our section on escaping temptation? How do I escape temptation? I need to start realizing, first of all, this is is a test. 
I'm being sifted. Secondly, realize I don't have to yield. Pray before and pray during. And furthermore, remember what the Word said and then run from the temptation because we don't have to yield. The Christians battle with temptation. We battle with worry. We battle with anger. We battle with our tongue. We battle with temptation. Every one of us have a battle before us. We've seen its nature. We've seen its cause. We've seen it's a battle. And we've seen how we can escape. There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come this morning believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and sing?